ordinary people. Um, we, we're now, I don't know how far we're into this series, how many weeks we have been talking about ordinary people. And Neil has brought up the fact about the disciples were ordinary men who, um, who, who were just like us. Um, but over the, over the last couple of weeks, I have been thinking about that verse in James chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, Elijah was an ordinary man like us. And, uh, and I knew that I was going to be speaking in a couple of weeks' time, and, and over and over again, this verse uh, kept just, you know when you get one of those verses and it's just in the back of your mind? And I suppose it's, it's, it's probably emphasized a little when you know you're going to be um, speaking some Sunday in church. And, and, uh, and so I've been going over and over that verse for quite a while. Elijah, James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was an ordinary, one of the translations, my translation says, Elijah was a man just like us. But some of the translations have, Elijah was an ordinary man like us. And the first uh, thing that I thought about was this word, like. And, uh, and it caused me to ask myself a question. Who am I trying to be like? You know, if you really want to know the real me, um, come and speak to the people that's closest around me. Come and speak to those who live in my home. Come and speak to my closest friends. They'll tell you what uh, I am really like. But something where church is concerned and even where ourselves are concerned is Christianity. We have been taught to perform in a certain way. We've been taught that uh, if you can't faith it, I remember hearing a famous speaker say this, if you can't fake it, if you can't faith it, then fake it. And, uh, and so over the years, an element of pretense has come into the church. And sometimes we walk through the doors of wherever we gather and we pretend to be something. We have this superstar idea of ourselves that, that we are somebody. And, uh, and performance and pretense, just like performance that I showed you at the start, well, really that type, that doesn't have a place within the body. We're not to perform one against each other. It's not the score sheets at the end of the week. How many people did you lead to Jesus? How many miraculous things did you see happen this week? You know, anyway. And, uh, and sometimes in that whole idea of us pretending to be someone, so we pretend to be someone, and we, when we're out in public, we, we do that well. But when we're at home, we're a different person, or in our private lives, we're, we're somebody else. And, and somewhere in the midst of those two places, have you ever heard the expression, we fall between the sticks? We have one foot in one place and one foot in another and those, those gaps so widen that we fall and crash in the midst. We become empty shells. We wear the badge well publicly, as I said. But in our homes, we are lifeless. In our private spaces, our experience with God is nothing more than a theory. It becomes just a bunch of rules that we keep. And what we end up doing is damaging our own lives when we fall into this trap 
And we not alone damage our own lives, but we damage the lives of the people around us. I read a book recently. It's in my bag. I did this the last day as well. By a girl called Barbara. Neil's reading it as well. We're reading it for Tawar. Ruth. I knew it was a Ruth. Barbara and Ruth sound the same to me. She quotes about a friend of hers who's in ministry, full-time ministry. And she arrives at a place where she is trying to sell people something. Steer people to something that she has no, she is left with no experience of herself. She has become an empty shell. And so what we want to do in this ordinary season, in this ordinary series is demystify all the junk. We want to say goodbye to the junk and we want to be ordinary people but living in connection with an extraordinary God. See, the Bible is full of ordinary people. Ordinary people just like you and me who didn't pretend to be something that they're not. I loved over the last couple of weeks how Neil has has brought us around the table, and, and we're going to do that as, we, as, as I uh, finish up. But uh, just encouraging us to come. Come as we are. Come in unity and diversity. Come to this beautiful, beautiful place that, that God has created for us, to meet with him. Come with, with the idea that mystery some way, God, in a mysterious way, a way that cannot be explained. Because for far too long, we've tried to explain everything. We've tried to justify everything. And you know what? God works and operates outside of our thinking. We come in unity. What does that mean? That means that we come holding each other's hands, carrying each other's burdens, being part of each other's lives, the good days and the bad. I heard a guy recently speak and he said the church has got it the wrong way around. And he was questioning when did this happen. We now confess our sins in private and do our acts of kindness. We display our acts of kindness in public. We now confess our sins in private. I'm not saying there isn't a place to be private, but the Bible teaches us that we're to confess our sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. The times of refreshing and healing will come. And your acts of kindness are meant to be done in quietness. Because that's what they are. Acts of kindness or deeds. See, there's power in confess sin. There's power that's unlocked inside of us when we confess our sin. But sometimes pride doesn't allow us to do that. Especially us men. We, we are strong with pride. Ronnie shared with us a couple of weeks ago, ably shared with us a week, couple of weeks ago about what's next. What has God got for you next? What is the next stage he has? What is the next season he has in your life? And I believe that unconfessed sin often affects our ability to hear. 
Unconfessed sin causes us to wear a mask. It all looks perfect on the outside, but in the dead of night, in the quietness, it's not. Unconfessed sin just affects us. And, and how can we be obedient to the voice of God if we can't hear it? Unconfessed sin eats away at us like a silent cancer inside. We're totally unaware of it. But the end result is that you will end up living outside, completely living outside the plan of God. David, four or five weeks, four weeks ago, talked about the idea of unity. And it's in that unity that we, we share our lives, warts and all. And you know, in that sharing of your warts and all, you know what happens? Is we start to get a sober evaluation of ourselves, a sober judgment of who we really are. They say a great journey, a great journey starts out with knowing exactly where your starting point is. Many of us are trying to go on a journey with the Lord and we have no idea who he's called us to be because we've lost that somewhere in the midst of pretense and performance. That's a, that's a message on its own, isn't it? That's a message to me. But Elijah... He was a man just like us. And then I thought, you know what? After I had all that moments of chewing all that over, I thought, well, it'd be a good idea maybe just to read part of the story of Elijah. Can't cover it all, but it's found in 1 Kings 17. If you want to turn with me there, we'll read it quickly and then just draw some few things out of it, if that's okay. Verse 17, chapter 1 says, now Elijah the Tishbahite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, Ahab was the king, As surely as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be rain nor dew in the land for the next years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Leave here, turn eastward and hide uh, in the, in the Cherith, the raven, east of the Jordan. And you will drink from the brook there, and I have ordered ravens to feed you, feed you there. Elijah did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the brook east of the Jordan and stayed there, and the ravens brought him uh, bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Verse 7, sometime later the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Go to a village. It's a shortcut, by the way. I've commanded a widow there to supply you with food. And so he went to the village. And when he came to the town, a widow was gathering sticks and he called her and asked her, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And she was going to, when she was go, as she was going to get it, he called again and bring me a loaf of, uh, bring me a piece of bread. The woman replied, as surely as the Lord lives, I don't have any bread. I've only a handful of flour and a jar in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son 
for, my, for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as I have said, but first make me the meal. Make me the cake and bring it to me that I may, that I may have it. And then make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain. And so she went away and did as Elijah told her. And so there was food every day for Elijah and the woman and her family. But the, the jar of flour was not used up and the oil didn't run dry. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became very ill and finally he stopped breathing. And she said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of the sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. And he took him in his arms and carried him to an upper room where he was sitting and laid him on the bread. And then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then Elijah stretched himself out over the boy three times and cried to the Lord. O Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the boy and carried him down from the room in the house, and he gave it to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are the, are the man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land again. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about Abraham and Sarah, and they would become a mother and father of a great nation. 1,200 years or so has passed, and the children of Israel, this nation, has become so vast that it has to be split in two. Millions of people are now on, on the earth because of the promise Abraham made to Abraham and Sarah. The nation is so great, it's split in two, as I've said, and there's the northern and there's the southern. And the northern, we're, we're going to look at the northern region uh, this morning. And the northern region had many kings. And most of those kings were selfish. They, they, they pleased themselves. They did what satisfied themselves. Very few of them were um, true. Uh, but we read about this king. Every time a king died, another king was brought into succession. And I don't know how far Ahab is down the line, but we read in uh, verse uh, 30 of the, of the previous chapter, this was Ahab's resume. This was what came on his CV um, if you were going to employ Ahab. It said he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of, the, of those before him, any of the kings before him. This was the man who was called to, to lead God's people. And yet, he is the man who does the most, in any, uh, most evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 33 goes on um, uh, to add insult to injury. Hope you know what that statement means. It's 
not a statement that's used, but to add more to the situation. In verse 33, we read that Ahab also made, uh, no, 32, he set up Baal uh, as a worship, that the people would worship Baal, and then he set up Asher poles. And he did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. Imagine that was what was written on over you. You did more to provoke the Lord than any other king before you. And in steps into the scene is this young man called Elijah. We have a, an Elijah here with us this morning. And he's a, he's a, he's a young man who's full of life and, uh, and ready to take on. Aren't you, Elijah? Aren't you ready to take on and do what God called you to do? And uh, he steps in and steps up before the king, King Ahab. And um, we need to not just undermine that in any way. This was no bumping in the village as you're picking up your milk. He would have had to have an entrance before the king. And there would have been many people around guarding the king. And at one command, this guy's head could have been chopped off. And he goes before the king and he says, there will be no rain in the land. There will be no dew or rain in the land for the next few years at my word. Now, if I read in James, I read that Elijah was a man who prayed. And yet, the start of this story, we do not read of Elijah praying. We read of him declaring the word of God. Where did he get that word from? Where did it come from? It came back, it was many centuries before when God gave his decrees to Moses. And it's found back in Deuteronomy 11, where where. The people of of Israel were told to love and obey the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 11, 16, it says, Be careful, or you will entice to turn away and worship. You will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that there will never be, neither be rain on the ground. It will yield no produce, and you will perish from the good from the good land the Lord has given you. And I love this about this young boy, this young boy who stands up and declares the word of the, God, of the Lord where he gets his confidence. His confidence isn't just rooted in some brilliant idea that he came up with, but it comes out of a time we read in James of prayer. And it seems like in that time of prayer, the word of God that he would have been so used to, he would have grown up with, is now revealed to him, and he gets a boldness that comes. And, uh, and, I, and I throw a little caution out that we, we see a lot of people that, that prophesy things that aren't the word of the Lord, that they're not grounded in God's word in any way. But that's not what we see here. We see this young man. And so he has this confidence and boldness to stand up and do. And then as soon as he declares the word, God says to him, now, I have a wee job for you to do, Elijah. I want you to go to a brook. I want you to go to a quiet place and sit there and wait. Sorry, Lord, I don't understand this. You've asked me to confront the king so that the nation will be brought back to you. Surely you need me to help you 
sort this all out. No, Elijah, I don't. Go you and sit at the brook. And when you're sitting there at the brook, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get, you're going to be fed. But you're going to be fed in an unusual way. How is that going to be, Lord? By ravens. Ravens? Is ravens not dirty birds? Are Are they not unclean? Are they not birds that represent death and sin? Yeah, but I'm God. I can supply you whatever I want. And I I can't help but put myself in the shoes of Elijah at that point and question all these things. Why are you sending me away to a quiet place? You're going to do something amazing, God, but you want me to go and sit at a brook. But I love in... in, um, In verse 5, it says, so Elijah did. He went and did what the Lord had commanded him to do. You know, we don't like the brook seasons in life. None of us like the brook seasons in life. None of us like the waiting seasons in life. And when we're in the brook season, what I have found is we always question how God wants to provide for us in those seasons. And so it's that obedience in Elijah the ordinary man who is just like us, that causes him to take his next step. In light of what Ronnie's saying, remember a couple of weeks ago, what's next? God will not lead you into your next step until you fully embrace the season and the step he has you now. That season ended, and in verse 7 we read that he he was called... um, Sometime later, the brook dried up. I don't know whether your brain is a wee bit wired different to mine, but I would be sitting there watching that brook and the level of water going down all the time in the brook because there's a famine in the land and the water's getting lower and lower. And I would be planning and saying, Lord, I wouldn't even be talking to God. I'd just be planning myself. I think it's soon time I left the brook. I think it's soon time I moved on. It's soon time I started to make plans for our next step. But we don't read that about Elijah. We say that we read that the brook dried up first. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. I just marvel at how Elijah trusted in that God had Elijah's next step planned ahead. And so he goes, he goes to this town. God tells him where to go. And he goes to this town, to this widow woman. I was really drawn to this widow woman as I, as I thought about it. I thought about what she represented. There's a famine in the land. She has a small piece of, of um, flour. She has a small bit of oil left. And she's going home to make a meal for her and her son, that that they can die. She has no other provision left. And Elijah says to her, make me a meal first. If I was the, if I was the widow, I would have said, he's kind of arrogant, isn't he? Because he not alone wants me to make something, he not alone wants me to make him something, but he wants me to make his first. And yet we see the obedience of the woman. She says, she obviously is aware of God because she says, as surely as the Lord lives, 
I have only these few things. And she goes home and she does what, what um, the prophet commands her to do. And she, she makes it. And we read that, that it was as, uh, as the word of the Lord was. That um, she had enough for her, her son, but she had more. Did you ever think about that? Did you ever read that in that story? She not alone had enough for her and her son, but it says she had enough for her and her family. You see, where God leads us, he'll provide. But he not alone just wants to provide for our needs, but he wants to provide for the needs of the, of the people around us. And so, um, and so that continued on. It's a miracle in itself. It's a story in itself of how she gave out of her nothing. And God blessed them. In, um, I, I, I just sometimes confess to you, sometimes I worry, will the jar run dry? Maybe, maybe you're not like that. Maybe, maybe you don't worry about, will the jar run dry? Sometimes God leads us into seasons of life. We obey and then we look at the jar and think, will that jar really last? He provides, and as I've said, he provides more than we need. In verse 17, we read that tragedy hits the home. Her son dies. Her son, her only son dies. The one whom her hope and everything is built in dies. Just because you're following God doesn't mean that there won't be times that it's difficult. We, we, I, I grew up in an era 20 years ago within the church that if you had a difficulty, if you had a trial, if you were facing lack or struggle, even if you were tempted in any way and you confess that, you are made to feel that you were not a Christian in any way. You are made to feel that there was something wrong with your faith. If you were going through a trial, people would look at you and judge you and easily come to the, the, rec- the conclusion, one, your faith wasn't strong enough, or two, you had sin in your life. And I am so glad over the last 10 years that that, that, ha- that has been pushed to one side within the church. And the church has come to realize that people do struggle. The trials do come. Yes, some we bring upon ourselves, but others come. And, uh, and, and the, this woman faced the exact same struggle. As soon as her boy dies, the first thing she does is she questions herself. Have I sinned? Have I, have I done something to make this God angry? This was a perfect opportunity for evangelism. He could have turned around and said to her, yeah, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So please get down on your knees and repeat the sinner's prayer. But he, he didn't. He, um, he goes straight to the problem. He picked up the boy and presented him before God. And I love this section where he takes the boy and he takes him up to, up to his room, up to a quiet place. 
Over the last week, I have found myself. It's just been a hectic, busy week. And I have found myself going to high places to pray. Just to be alone, just to lay it out before God. He lays the boy on the bed and this is the prophet, this is the man of God. He prays and cries out to God. He doesn't do it once. He doesn't do it twice. But he does it three times. And I think, Neil, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago that word relentless. He was relentless. I heard it regarding some GAA matches yesterday. Some of the teams are relentless. They don't give up. And um, I'm not a GAA supporter, but I just heard it on the radio. And we, we need to be relentless. No matter what our position is with God, we need, there's times we need to be relentless. And his prayer was simple. His prayer was simple. He cried out to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy upon this widow? And then he cried out and he said, O oh Lord, my God, let the boy's life return to him. I was thinking about this. Some of my best answered prayers in life are one-liners. They're not big, long essays. They're not big, long, wordy things. Some of my best answered prayers, some of my, the ones I remember, are one-liners. Oh God, let this boy's life return to him. Remember the position, this is the man of God. If, if Elijah's a man just like us, can we switch that around and say, then we are to be people just like Elijah. And there's times we need just to cry out to God. Verse 22, the Lord heard Elijah's cry. I think it's a beautiful part in the story. He's got the ear of God. He's got the ear of God. And something, you know, I just felt as David was sharing about prayer and that idea of pressing into prayer, that we would get the ear of the Lord. And the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. And Elijah picked him up and brought him downstairs to the mother. What was it like for the mother? Because us as men, we understand a wee bit what it is to be a parent. But we don't understand to the same capacity as a mother does. What was it like for the mother in, those, in that time when, when he, they were upstairs? When the boy's life had left him, what was it like? What was it like for the mother going home with her morsel back earlier in the story, knowing that this was probably going to be her last meal that she was going to make? What was it like for the mother? And they... Uh, and we've shared this over back at the beginning of the year. There's something of the mother heart of God that we miss. Because we've made God masculine. And, uh, and the mother sees the son. And, uh, and there's this beautiful moment in verse 24 where she says this. Now I know. Now I know. 
And I felt that the Holy Spirit wanted to remind us this morning that there's times where we've prayed for stuff. There's times where we have laid stuff out before the Lord. Maybe, maybe it was that you wanted to come here as an intern. And you cried out to the Lord for that. And God allowed it to happen. Maybe it was that um, you were having an exam or you were going for a job. And you cried out for it. And he gave it to you. And you knew in that moment God's good. Maybe it was exam results or college you wanted to go to. Maybe it was a work situation. Maybe it was for a partner or a friend. Maybe it was even just a house and a location that you wanted to move to. And God heard you in that moment. And you realized he's good. I felt that God wanted to say to you this morning, as you're journeying in things, he's been faithful in the past. He's been faithful in the past and he's not, not going to be faithful in the future. He comes down the stairs. The mother is beside herself and she sees her baby boy alive. That now I know moment comes alive within her. Her trial has ended. Now she knows that God is alive. Neil shared with us a couple of weeks ago that as we share communion with one another, sometimes there's moments that God wants to do something. Sometimes there's moments that, that God just wants to speak to us. And, uh, and I just sense, so sense this morning that God wants to give us now I know moments. As we come intentionally, as we come expectantly, as we come just with the idea we are who we are, who he is, we, we actually are who he has created us to be. As we share the bread and as we share the wine, and it's not alone as we do that this morning, but as we, as we take moments during this week to meet with him. In communion individually as we take moments this week as we extend our tables that we would have now I know moments that we would see him providing for us in a different way I think he's challenging us to look outside the box I think he's challenged us to be open to how he wants to lead us so what we're going to do is um in the midst of all this, is we're going to share the bread. So if Jesse, if you could take that, Paul, if you could take that, and just if you just pass it to the row behind you, and then the row behind will pass it. And just hold the bread. Hold the bread. Because the bread represents brokenness. And can I say, as we're thinking of brokenness, Brokenness is our friend. Brokenness is not our enemy. And the church, in some way, has told us a lie that we need to be whole to receive everything of Christ. We don't. It's in the brokenness 
that he makes us whole. And then we can just pass around the, the, the cup and take the cup in your hand if that's okay too. This word I know, Jesus used it in the New Testament when he was talking to his disciples. He said to his disciples, you see one day when I go away and the disciples, when, and the Holy Spirit comes, then all this gobbledygook and everything that sounds way beyond your understanding that I've been trying to speak to you about for the last couple of years, you're going to have an, an, an I know moment. You're going to have a moment where it's all going to click in. And that's our greatest prayer is that we would create a healthy church with people with I know moments. They would know God in their good times. They would know God in their trials. They would know God in the seasons of life that he has brought them into. That we would know how to rest in those seasons, knowing that he has taken care of the next season of our lives. If he can provide for a widow, can he not provide for us? So as you hold the bread and as you hold the wine, I think we're near there. I will remind you of this ordinary man who knew his calling. First of all, knew who he was in Christ. He knew his calling. He knew the voice and the word of God. and was able to stand boldly upon that. He knew what it was to be obedient to the commandments of God. He knew what it was to rest in the season that God had him in. He knew what the results of that rest would bring. He knew how to trust in the provision of God, even if it was outside what is traditions and the way he would have been brought up. He knew the heart of God when the trial came, when the pressure was on. He knew God that wasn't an opportunity for God to, to condemn, but it was an opportunity for God to draw people to himself. And he knew the power of unrelenting prayer. And so, let's take the bread, take the wine, as we do with that expectancy. Father, help us to know. Help us to know. It's a great cry of our hearts that we would know. And in knowing, Father, that you would give us life, you'd free us from traditions. Amen.